Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson and this is episode 28 of this podcast and in it I'm speaking to Paul Levy who we've spoken to before but it was a good long time ago and in this one we're talking about improvisation in the training room. I'm here again with Paul Levy. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, John. Yeah, good here in, in a sunny Brighton in the UK. Well, thank you very much for coming back on this. You, uh, it's a year since you were last on this podcast, in fact, over a year. So thank you very much for coming back. You were one of the first. It's raced by. It has. It has. I think you were, I think you were the second, actually. So um, it's great to have you back on. And in that time, I know you've been touring the UK on your book tour for your dig- Digital Inferno book. That's right. And you are writing a new book, I understand, about improvisation? Yeah, I guess this one, it's very different from the Digital Inferno book. And it's just that over the 25 plus years I've been involved in the facilitator, I came across a community that were very much into the improvisational nature of facilitation. So where at one extreme, you've got programs, agendas, things fixed somewhere in the middle you've got programs and agendas that are often called default training or development programs where we then adapt and improvise on the day and then you've got something right at the other extreme which you might call open space unconferencing emerging um, or emergence which is essentially where a trainer walks into a room and doesn't know what they're going to do and literally starts from a blank sheet of paper and all along that line is, is different ways of doing it and where does improvisation fit in with that i mean obviously it's towards the open space but is it right at that end or is it a few steps back towards um the structured end i think the good thing is improvisation can fit anywhere along there in the same way as theater can and people have probably heard of the the work of someone like keith johnston who wrote you know the seminal book about kind of training and improvisation that can be used in teaching and and even in business training um and you know you can have quite tight structure and in theatre, that's called being scripted, but you can go off script just a little bit, or you can go right to the other extreme with that blank sheet of paper and an improv troupe in theatre will walk on stage, maybe get a couple of ideas from the audience and off they go in the moment making it up. And this is what you want to talk about on today's podcast, isn't it? It's the use of improvisation within training. Yeah, and without a doubt, that's been a growing area, particularly as change has increased in almost all business and public sector life in different countries and the need to be adaptive and more responsive as a business. It makes obvious sense that we need to be teaching and training the skills of how to be adaptive and responsive in the training room. And it's a bit hypocritical if we do that with fixed programs and PowerPoint. Right. I'm quite intrigued about this because as, as a trainer, obviously, I improvise quite a lot. And almost by its very nature, it doesn't have any structure or any kind of model. It's just I'm adapting and responding to the people in the room. So I'm quite intrigued to know how you're actually going to structure this cast. Do you want to just talk me through how you how you want to present it? Well, I mean, I mean, can I start with a bit of controversy? And I guess the controversy is that... You did that last time, if I Yeah. Well, I, I've met, and also this is a bit of self-observation in my development, a lot of trainers and facilitators who claim to be improvisational, but are less actually improvisational than they believe and actually are. Um, and some of that's more or less conscious, but I've met a lot of facilitators um, and I've had the opportunity as a researcher to sit in on sessions and watch 
quite a lot um, where somebody goes, I'm very flexible. But what you actually see them doing is anchoring in their script what they were going to do. Um, you know, doing things like exercises like icebreakers where they'll go around and ask people, what are your aims for today? And everyone will say what they want. And then the facilitator proceeds to either just incrementally adapt or not adapt at all. Um, and so then these sort of um, forms of, of adaptation and um, improvisation become a bit fake and a bit, you know, uh, PR-ish and not real. And then linked to that also is the notion that um, we're being improvisational um, and adaptive but what we're really doing is what we were planning to do in the first place and we're we're not aware of it and what's actually needed in the room um, is true responsiveness and that uh, there's a book came out I think it was this year uh, by Edgar Schein a psychologist called Humble Inquiry which is we as trainers need to be less in a delivery mode and genuinely more in a responsive mode where we become naive and open and the next thing we do isn't something in our back pocket um, and it's not even something we were planning to do at all it could be that we literally have to invent there and then and we can only do that by opening up our attention to the the people in the room and then the, amount, the number of people actually doing that for real um, is much less than, than you might think. Right, okay. Now I'm just thinking through whether or not I am a, a real improviser or just somebody who does, as, as you just suggested, um, delivers kind of what we're going to do anyway, but maybe just adapts it slightly. Mm. We might need to pause for about an hour while I think about it. Well, where do you think where do you think you do fit? I don't want to go into therapy mode, but I certainly was aware of myself in my younger days that I kidded myself I was more flexible than I actually was on the day, and I've sought to change that over time. And one of the ways was by learning and practicing the skills of improvisation. Well, I kind of want to hear what you mean by improvisation in a, in a training delivery sense before I decide, because. I'm actually still fairly confident I'm probably at the improvisation end of the scale genuinely. But at the same time, obviously, I when I approach a, a learning event, I do have a certain amount of content that I want to get across, almost irrespective of what the learners demand. And so I try to be responsive, but I am conscious of the fact that I am also have my own agenda. So I'm kind of interested to know how you define it well, before, I, I, before yeah. I plant my flag and commit. I, I think if, if what has been contracted and agreed by the people actually in the room is you know they come along they want a first aid course that's why they're there and you've got first aid to teach now you might improvise about how you teach it but you won't not teach first aid so it's all right to have scriptedness and it's all right to have pre-structure particularly when the people in the room know what they've uh, come along for and and you know you have agreed to do that but if actually we're at the end of uh, we don't quite know what the outcomes really are and actually we've only had an hour with the client and that's not with the people in the room um, and there's an agenda we're not aware of um, and actually the organization may even have changed a bit by from the day when we actually contracted to the people actually in the room or the mood has changed that adaptation becomes vital um, and even onto being able to be humble enough to drop what we really thought we were going to do now that that might sound idealistic but actually quite often the feedback from clients is when we do that and we are truly responsive the skills um, stick and what we deliver was actually much more relevant and people buy into it because they feel ownership of it. So it becomes less than about selling learning and more about people selling learning to themselves because you as the trainer, you become a kind of, and it sounds a slightly sort of new agey, but you become a bit of a conduit for what's really needed in the room rather than the guess of what we thought was needed before we went in. 
And that, that links to a medical model of, you know, where things are fairly stable and moving slowly, diagnosing a problem in advance and then deciding on, you know, the intervention is OK. But where actually the system is changing a lot, that diagnosis is out of date within minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely convinced of this. And it's certainly the way that I would like to develop my facilitation skills. So how are you going to take us through it? Well, I guess um, if I if I flagged up a field called applied improvisation, um, essentially what improvisers do is two things. One is they actually improvise, but the other one is paradoxically they rehearse in advance. And all that means is they learn to get in the zone of improvising, to get in, you know, there's lots of literature around flow and how do you get in, into flow. So a lot of improvisers warm up. A lot of improvisers, I mean, actually, mindfulness is one word. Meditation is another. Um, some people would simply just will do some creative activities. But um, you probably need first to be in the zone to improvise. For me, I don't do anything particularly new agey other than I think I do pause before I go into a room and I get myself into a state where when I walk into that room, the state that I'm in is one of humble inquiry. Um, I look around the room, I greet people and I'm already open and I'm genuinely open to that process that group that system in the room informing my next steps um, and so there's a kind of inner dialogue with yourself about I don't fully know what we're about to do and I think that is fundamentally different from a facilitator who goes well I've got an agenda and I do adapt um, it can be the same but quite often that's not a place of real inquiry that's almost a place of irritation of problem solving and now I'm going to have to change this but it's almost reluctant this is a state where you need to be willing to be open from the start um, and that you know that's what improvisers do they go in on stage and the audience is different every day and what they do has to be adaptive to the mood uh, and, and the ideas that are fed to them but then the second stage of that is it, it, it is a skill to um, to know when to, to move along that line from what well, this is a blank sheet of paper and literally there are facilitators who do that they will throw the whole program out um, and they will say right this is what we really need to do and it's coming out of the room here and the other one is a classic sort of alchemy a mixing up of your well we were going to do it that way um, and it still makes sense to do it that way but we're going to add another 15 minutes or we're actually going to have a much longer feedback or I'm going to let this activity run much longer and that does mean not having time for the next activity and so you're thinking on your feet you're humble about your program you're not precious about things that you're running you do have to often run the balance between what's in the room and what say clients have contracted to I mean you do have those dynamics to play with too personally I think what you need to do is try and get as much freedom in advance as possible and and to deliver what's needed in the room the process for that I know I'm talking quite a bit here but the process for that is probably one where you do pre-diagnose but you are prepared to re-diagnose when you're in the room and that might be the simplest model pre-diagnosis re-diagnosis and then improvisation that allows you to adapt do you want I mean do you want to take us through what that would actually look like maybe with a real life example or or however best would would articulate that yeah so i mean actually i'll give two examples so what one is that you genuinely make uh the the round icebreaker at the beginning if you do one real so this isn't just oh well i better get everybody warmed up which is you know the assumption of icebreakers it's that that is a genuine re-diagnosis activity so that the first half an hour of any session seeks to find out who's in the room seeks to find out what they want to learn seeks to find out why that they've come and then you're very very quickly you know processing that to see if the program that you thought you were going to run makes sense 
at the extreme end of it is that you haven't you've already contracted not to have a program so what you do is a similar activity where people are kind of sharing what they're restless about what their questions are and particularly if you've got um, that ability you then start to form what we what we do and on my own website there's about 40 activities that were made up on the spur of the moment some of them i've used again and some of them i've because i've shared them online other people have used them again so you you use a mix of i mean here are the three things um, john one is this is a tool i've used before i plan to use it and i'm using it now that's one. Second one this is a tool i've used before i wasn't planning to use it but now it makes sense to use it um, and the third one is this is a tool um, I haven't used before or a version of a tool and I'm making it up here in the room and it's forming in me and I feel confident to try it out. And that's more experimental. And then you might write that up afterwards and it becomes a tool you'll use or you might just let it pass. But having those three things in your repertoire is key. The the pre-programmed thing that you do, but you improvise the decision in real time. I'm, I was going to do it and thinking it, uh, on my feet now, it still makes sense to do it. Second one is to um, to actually not do it um, and do something else, and the third one is to invent something that wasn't there before. In, in terms of actually how you how this lands with the learners, because some of that you can actually do behind the scenes, and they won't even notice that you're changing your style or, or your content. But in some cases, you might not be delivering something that was on the original objectives. You might not be sticking to a plan which may not suit some personality styles. It could be that the room is being dominated by certain people and other voices aren't being heard. How, how do you manage all of that? Well, the key thing is that it, you know, if you contract the agenda in advance, you are very much tied to the agenda that you've contracted. If you actually contract outcomes, you've at least then got the flexibility to uh, improvise the agenda itself. Um, and so you can say, you know, we, we would like to have this at the end of the day. It could be learning outcomes. It could be organizational outcomes. But how you do it, it's up to you as long as we kind of reach those and we trust you as a trainer deliverer that can improvise. And then the third one, which is more at the end of unconferencing and open space and so on, is where the learning is more. We want to explore a question. We want to move an issue forward or even we don't really know what the learning needs to be. So we'd like you to go in and find out what we don't know or what we can't do and improvise there. And then now I know that's rarer but that's coming in more and more particularly in innovative startups will sometimes get me in and say we just want to have a day to come together and be creative and actually when we get to the end of the day and say so what did you learn they might go well I learned to be a better presenter or my time management's now much better because that's where we went we went where the energy and the the need was on the day so the closer it is to a fixed agenda that's contracted in advance, the less space you've got to improvise. And if you do, you become a bit of a terrorist because you're actually going against what you've agreed. And, and it's kind of illegal. I, I think you said you were going to you were going to do two examples and I interrupted you. You did the example of the icebreaker. Was there another example that, that I threw you off and distracted you? Well, I think the other way, I mean, it's more to do with um, imagine yourself during the day genuinely checking in with your learners. Now, that can be done silently, where, again, in humble inquiry, you're genuinely, as you walk around, watching and listening, but not just to check everything's going to plan, but just to check in with where people are at and to see if it still makes sense to do what you are doing next. 
So as a trainer, you become a genuine sensing mechanism, a responsive system throughout the day. Now, you can do that informally through observation, but you can also do that a bit like the icebreaker by genuinely having ways for people to feed how things are going. So you can check in more often. Uh, you use reflection on activities to guide what we do next. And people can see you very overtly doing that. I know there are some tools already out there and uh, that do that quite well. That as you go off to breaks, people can stick post-it notes on doors saying, do more of this, do less of this, things I'm unclear about. So there are ways of, of doing it. But the idea is that during the day, you seek the input. And so you, you end up with a kind of collaboration process with your learners, rather than the idea that you're there as a trainer to deliver something to them. What you're actually trying to do is to deliver something with them. It, are there any specific skills that trainers need to develop in order to be successful at this? Well, it's the ability to listen and to absorb quickly and then to adapt. And that is improvisation. Uh, you know, one of the definitions of improvisation is genuinely being able to make decisions in real time as close to the present as possible. Um, and so that's where groups like the Applied Improvisation Network come together because they meet, for example, in London and the US and they have groups. They just come together to practice those skills and people try different games and activities and they activity share with each other. Um, and there are books, you know, about that, too. So that's one way. Um, and another way is you build it into your practice. And I would ask everyone listening that if you think you are an improvisational facilitator, it's just to actually sit down at the end of one of your courses and ask yourself, at what points during the day did you genuinely adapt? Were you genuinely open? What were you doing at that time? It's certainly through learning how to um, facilitate genuine reflection. It's the ability to take agendas and um, change the timings change the content and change the order of activities on the day itself. It's the ability to contract with groups more or less, so to negotiate a bit with them. So, you know, you might be get towards lunchtime and actually sit down with a group and say, um, I'm seeking your permission to do something very different after lunch. I know we were going to do this, but this makes more sense. And if they trust you, they will allow you to experiment and break script as long as they believe they're still heading towards the outcomes they contracted for. You mentioned there uh, a group called, was it Active Improvisation Network? It's the Applied Improvisation Network, yeah. And that, they, are, they are on a community called, I think it's appliedimprov.ning.com. It's one of those Ning communities. Yeah, so there's about, I think, a thousand members around the world who are, are focusing on this. And you said that there's some activities as well on your own website. That's right. If you go on my cats3000.com and link through to the applied improvisation section, what, what I've done is I've kind of kept a diary over the last, well, probably 20 years. So there's about, I think there's about 50 activities now of the things that I made up on the day and then decided to write up in case anybody wanted to use them, which sounds paradoxical because I've kind of scripted them. But the feedback I get is people uh, make their own activities up and they've used some of mine as part of, uh, you know, just having them in their backpack to be a bit more flexible in their days and um, to have more tools and techniques available to them yeah but i mean you're not saying improvisation is literally having to make absolutely everything up from scratch of course you're using tools and you know stuff you've done before but you're just applying it differently and fitting it together differently yeah i mean and th there's the paradox john because like if, I, I remember once at the edinburgh fringe there was a, a very very famous improvisation comedy group you know they're the, in the in the paul merton world of you know i, I I'm sorry, I haven't a clue and, and those sort of people um, whose line is it anyway. And a reviewer went along from one of the newspapers and then went, happened to see the show again and then kind of criticised them because some of the improvisers had used the same gags. 
Um, and then the improvisation group came back very strongly and said, improvisation doesn't mean you don't repeat things. What it means is when you repeat them, uh, you repeat them for the first time. Um, and what that means is we're all full of a library of great experiences and treasures that there's a difference between reusing something out of habit or because we've scripted it and and finding it anew again from our lovely repertoire of things but using it as if it was for the first time again that's much harder i also think that's such an important point because you can completely overcomplicate it and just think i've got to make the whole thing up on the spot which i think is unprofessional myself And what I found, I mean, and this is something that surprises me again and again, Harrison Owen, the inventor of open space conferencing, which is a very minimal kind of intervention you can find on online, um, talks always about looking for one less thing to do. And the thing I found is when I do go into an improvisational state, what I end up doing is nearly always more simple than what I designed. And and there, there do seem to be some archetypal tools for trainers that are sometimes just about listening, sometimes about dialogue, sometimes about collecting ideas, sometimes about getting out of our chairs and going into a different space that's a lot simpler than long questionnaires, PowerPoint slides, diagnostic activities, experiential games and role plays. They they have a place, but the danger is when we script, we over script. And when we improvise, what's great is we tend to simplify. So, I, I, you know, when, when you were first talking about this, I was thinking this kind of almost gets you out of doing a lot of prep, because as long as you've got a big box of tricks of that experience, then you don't really need to do as much preparation. But actually, probably the opposite is true. You actually really need to kind of be, have a much deeper and uh, understanding of the subject and a much deeper understanding of what what you can and can't do well i think to be able to be an improviser you have to keep you know practicing being in the improvisational zone and getting into that particularly in this distracted scripted world that we're in but it is funny a friend of mine jack martin leith who's an innovation trainer facilitator he always tells the story of how when he used to do minimal uh, kind of improvised training like using an open space event where the participants create the agenda and he kind of heads off once they're all following their own agenda is that the uh, client tried to beat him down on price afterwards because they said he hadn't done much even though it was one of the most powerful days the participants had said they'd had <laughs> that's quite funny yeah that is a danger i suppose is that people do have an expectation of a trainer turning up and having a structure content timings the whole thing you know buttoned down to the and they might be a bit disappointed if you sort of rock up and start saying right what we're going to do then yeah, there must there must be certain ways you have to play that and 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 present it in a way that still sounds like this is a professional day and it's a good use of your time. You do. I, I've got one strong memory though. I remember of going to a, a drop-in singing class, which I'd never been to before, and we walked into the room and there were already about four people there and they were just standing in a circle and I wasn't quite sure who was leading it. Um, and then someone looked up and she just sort of beckoned me in very gently to the circle because they were already singing. And people went to that group who who thought they were tone deaf. And she didn't say a word for three hours. She just kept singing and we kept joining in and she was changing the songs. And I know that she had some she'd chosen and some she was improvising. But basically three hours later, everybody in the room was smiling and could sing um, in tune and in harmony. And she didn't say a word. And I think she was in a state of pure improvisation. And the only technique she'd used was being in a circle. Um, and yeah so the danger is that you think she doesn't know what she's doing and there were definitely frowns at the beginning but when we all came out singing brilliantly you sort of realize and that's the key measure in the end if when you reflect at the end and it's hit your goals it's met your outcomes you're feeling satisfied either organizationally or individually doesn't matter whether it was um, a zero agenda if it achieved your objectives unless you're a meanie in your spirit you're going to be very very happy with the outcome so given the fact that you know most of us 
that have been doing this a while do end up spending most of our time at least adapting and probably improvising as well. Why do we spend so much time scripting everything and putting perfect timings in and all of this kind of stuff? It's almost a a great irony of all training, which is that, you know, good training is spontaneous uh, and adaptive and responsive and sometimes very skillfully scripted. But most organizations which are seeking now to become leaner and simpler and, you know, able to flow and respond better are over-designed and over-scripted, tend to over-measure. And so commercial trainers and facilitators who, you know, fear being uh, not not getting the next job tend to over-promise, over-deliver, over-design, send agendas. Those agendas become curses then that they have to follow. Um, And so we're sort of mapping ourselves onto organisational cultures um, and that ends up undermining the very thing we're trying to help with. Yeah, that does sound extremely familiar. So you you said before that on your website you had 50-odd examples of when you've actually successfully improvised and those are things that that any of us can go and read and potentially pick up and use in our own uh, training courses. Can you give us a couple of examples of what sort of things those are? Yeah, so I basically put myself through a year where whenever I was invited to do training and the way I contracted was that I contracted on outcomes and not on uh, an agreed agenda. And so, you know, I needed to be trusted. And what what I set myself the task was not to use anything um, in the workshop that I hadn't invented myself. So one part of that was I had to make them up on the day. And the other one was I did allow myself to use an activity as long as I'd invented it before. So then I had to improvise the decision to use it. And it was just to see what I came up with. And over that period of time, I wrote, and some are probably similar to ones that existed, and I may have reinvented the wheel, but um, there's about 50 uh, different activities that I used. Um, and so, I mean, do you want me to dive into a couple of them? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say a couple of those might be quite interesting to illustrate the point. Yeah, so examples will be where um, you you don't design the training room completely. And so you actually hand over the possibility of the participants to come in and organize things how they want. I mean, that's a, a, a classic one. Rather than being the caterer of everything, the more that you actually allow people to self-organize. And you can't always do that right at the start. You can sometimes do that during an activity later. Um, you, so instead of saying there's flip chart pens, there's pens, uh, paper, there's this, and I want you to do this and it'll take 20 minutes, you might just go use the materials that you need and they're in the room. And that just freeze things up straight away Um, being more say specific um, I mean another one is where you've got any form of training um, materials and that could be for example um, you're exploring a construct you're exploring a way of behaving that could be along a line um, as I was just talking about where you know training can be anything from open to scripted but instead of doing that uh, say sitting around with a a sheet of paper you actually uh, you know roll out a toilet roll and, and you label that toilet roll along a line and you ask people to go and physically stand there um and that that um i've discovered of course exists but i literally made that up on the day and i've got a number of techniques now where um, i simply try and get people out of their seats and moving around and able to stand up and energy seems to go up when you do that uh, a couple of really specific ones were um one that I called um, stand up, sit down and lie down, which this will sound a bit weird, but it was inviting people to have three different kinds of conversation. I noticed everyone seemed to be in their heads around an issue. There was a lot of frowning. Energy was was low. Um, and so I said, right, can we all stand up, please? Move the chairs aside. And I want to have a similar conversation. But we're just going to stand up and just feel free to move around and occupy any place in the room and get close to people if you want to agree with them. Or, you know, if you disagree, you can raise your voice. And actually the whole quality of the 
discussion changed when we stood up. So then I took it even further and said, OK, uh, now can we all lie down? And um, this was a sort of group you could do that with. Um, and actually shoes and uh, shoes came off and people sort of lay down in a very lazy position. And then this conversation changed again and became even more reflective um, when we did it. And at one point, somebody actually took over the workshop and said, can everybody now just lie on their backs and close their eyes? And this person, they'd never done it before said, I just want to share with you a vision of what this problem could look like if we'd solved it. And they started leading a little visualization. This group would never have done that before. It wasn't even led by me. But I created that space by saying, let's change our physical orientation in the room. Uh, sometimes you can do the opposite, which is where everyone's sitting around and you actually get them, you know, let's draw it, let's write it. And people may well have done that one before. Um, so there's just a few examples. Oh, well, one more was I called verbal tweeting, uh, which was everyone was um, exploring an issue. It was a really what you might call a vicious learning problem. People were sharing a uh, conversation about it. And I said, let's learn something from the world of Twitter now. And I want you to have conversations and where you can, no sentence must be longer than 140 characters, just like in Twitter. Um, and there was lots of laughter at the start, but that brought people suddenly right down to, it's a classic improv game, I think, talking very essentially, trying to find the minimum words. Um, then I invited them and I improvised that. I said, now, as you listen, take a note, a bit of notepaper and just write down the tweets, the short statements that stand out most. And we shared those in the room. And actually, that's where the learning really kicked in. Oh, wow. That's a really interesting. Well, they're all really interesting ones. Yeah. But the point is, none of those were, I think I'll do this in advance. And they really weren't made up on the day. And somebody might have been going, oh, well, I read something on Twitter. And suddenly in my head, because I was in this zone, oh, let's do something with tweets. I was in a zone where I gave myself permission to invent on in real time you know on, on the day and it's quite it's quite scary it's quite energizing it's a bit risky sometimes but when it works um, it just really seems to get much closer to what people need in that moment there must be times when it doesn't work and the the cruel side of me does want to hear an example of when it's all gone to pot and you've stood there feeling like a you know real idiot has that have happened so i used a, a technique which um I, I invented and then discovered it had been in existence for 20 years which is quite funny so this is a toilet roll rolled out in a huge cross and then you label strongly agree strongly disagree mildly agree mildly disagree and don't and don't know in the middle and then you take some um controversial top topics or subjects you want people to explore could be health and safety topics for example and you ask people to go and stand uh, whether they agree or disagree with the statement that's being made um, so that seemed like a great idea um, and everybody stood up um, and sort of stood somewhere a little bit kind of awkwardly and then there was no there was just silence and nothing I could do could get that debate going. Um, and I read it wrong. That was a time when actually I didn't, that was one bit of improvisation too much, what Harrison Owen would call one more thing to do rather than one less thing, which was just to let people talk where they were sitting. That's interesting. And I think that makes a really good point because you can be quite enthused and excited about this and, and it can become quite trainer centric. Yeah. Because you could be thinking, I'm going to turn up and I'm going to be improvising and I'm going to be really good at it. Won't everybody be amazed about how brilliant I'm at improvising yeah. and forget the fact that that's not the point. Yeah. And that that's where it's you're in a mode and in an orientation of what is it that I should be doing rather than what is needed in this moment. And that place of humble inquiry rarely goes wrong because you are essentially just realizing in front of people what you're articulating either physically or verbally what it is that they want rather than what it is that you want them to want yeah i think that's important that humble inquiry uh, mindset rather than i'm a fab improviser mindset yeah so what sort of fields does this lend itself to best the improvisation approach it, it 
no, it, not surprisingly, wherever the training is focused on things like creativity and innovation, that's really where the applied improvisation network's gone very well. Um, those facilitators, it's all about how do we become more responsive as an organisation? Well, let's become more responsive as people. Um, it has worked and people have used it in more technical training too. Um, but, but those are less documented um, if you look on things like the Applied Improvisation Network. And the other area it's been used is in skills that are very similar to um, the skills that you'd probably want if you're on stage. So presentation skills, developing self-confidence, all of that kind of stuff lends itself to being um, to using the improvisation games and activities. Um, but but I, if you look on that Applied Improvisation Network, there are lots and lots of stories of the concept of being an improvisational trainer works well anywhere where there is space to not be 100% scripted in both the content and the delivery. So as a, at a principal level, it's universally applicable. As long as you're focusing on outcomes, I think, as you said before. Yeah, I think so. And it's also because people are watching TV now that's much, much quicker, much more responsive. Um, comedians are m- much more kind of... Um, they they react to the audiences more too. The businesses are supposed to be more reactive. So it is becoming more of an improvisational world at one level. At another level, you could argue this is the coding generation and what it's trying to do is create the illusion of improvisation, but actually everything on our iPhone is coded. So, you know, there is a kind of conspiracy theory that nothing's improvisational really because we're all being groomed all the time to follow patterns. We are the gadgets of the world. Um, that, that's a bit of a sad one. But my, my my own answer to that is, you know, the, the kids of the future need to be able to play and be creative. So I'm still in favour wherever we can be more improvisational. That's got to be good for humanity. Yeah. And I was also thought it'd be pretty applicable in things like management and leadership. You, you, I mean, the, yeah. those are jobs where you really do have to be thinking on your feet quite a lot, you know. Well, the notion of servant leadership, the notion of emotional intelligence, you know, some of those things that have come in um, more recently. And uh, was it Davos recently? There were lots of leaders who were um, interviewed for, I think it was an Oxford University study. And those leaders that were interviewed claimed that the days of the sort of pompous directive CEO are over and CEOs now need to be in a state of inquiry. They need to be listening. They need to be able to uh, think more responsively and, and, and learn from the organization. And if that's true, uh, the, the, the age of, of scriptedness at the top you know, is going. And one example of that um, is the notion of the CEO who blogs. There are still lots of CEOs, you know, the, the, the blog is written by not them, it's, it's written by a team, it's scripted, it's approved by about six departments, but there are some other really, really cool bloggers, and you know, Zappos might be one example where the CEOs blog that evening, they're allowed to tweet what they want, they're trusted, and they're essentially in a place of improvisation, and they feel more authentic, and that of course gets more buy-in, uh, and people are interested in what they have to say. Let's, let's assume now that I'm completely convinced and want to develop my facilitation skills in this direction. Direction. What could I do next? What would be the steps I would have to take? Well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a employed member of the Applied Improvisation Network, um, and there's quite a lot of people on that group that are still more at the scripted end. But but I would join the Applied Improvisation Network. I'd certainly buy a book on improv games. Lots of people around the UK now are joining improv groups just to kind of get a bit more spontaneous, and they're they're in most places. So going to a bit of of an improv workshop here or there. Down in Brighton, there's a group called the Maydays, and they literally do drop-in improvisational workshops. And the simplest one, of course, is on your next course, just build in a very safe amount of time where you just add a bit more improvisation to whatever it was you were planning to do. I think there's a lot of really good ideas there. Um, my only kind of concern, again, is coming back to that point of it appearing um, 
What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that it could appear to somebody who's turned up with different expectations that it's not sufficiently planned, that somebody's not taking my time seriously enough. And they're expecting a lot more kind of... They're expecting a very different approach from the trainer. So is there any advice you can give there in terms of how people should couch this, present this, if they are going into trying to be much more improvisational yeah john you have to Uh, i mean do you recognize the problem i'm talking about you have to contract it so uh, absolutely if what you do is say here's the program and this is what we're doing at nine and ten and there's a break here and that's what you promise and then you just go off on one um, it doesn't matter how good it is you may well um, upset people um, in the room whereas if what you contract is to say and the the classic term is the default program look this is what we're intending to run but just to warn you we're going to adapt a lot on the day and you're going to be expected to input and then people decide whether they come or not that's key i think one principle that's often in the world of open space at that extreme end of improvisation but i'd say in anything that's got improvisation in it is that the people in the room need to be volunteers in the room Um, and actually if they've been forced into the room then improvising with them is a really dangerous activity it much works much better with willing volunteers who know what they're coming to in exactly the same way as if i said hey john do you want to come and see a play the tickets are 30 quid and what we saw was some improv you might be very very shortchanged even if it was good whereas if i said to you hey do you want to come and see a show there'll be some improvisation in then you know what you're getting yeah I, th- I think that makes sense and and your point there about saying this is the kind of default program but yeah we we you know there's there's a huge amount of room for maneuver here we can you know chuck it in the bin or we can stick to it however you guys want to develop the day yeah and it isn't and it isn't that scriptedness has gone scriptedness is as important as ever but you're probably aware it's moved into the direction of things like um you know the two minute or 10 minute presentation of Petra Kucha or the um the TED talk you know which are about as scripted mostly as that you can get with a with a house style and so on people don't want to sit for two three four hours feeling that they're being controlled by a script they don't mind if it's brilliant content for 10 minutes but otherwise this is now a generation z coming through that is the generation that likes making it up they don't want to be told what to do by hierarchies thank you very much for that paul i think that's really interesting points that you're making and an interesting approach to facilitation and that's um i've forgotten the name of it again applied so the improvisation network yeah applied improvisation network is is the community if you google them they have a website and then they're not so you know it's free to join their community so you can just tap into that community they do a conference but there are other communities around as well if you google you might be surprised at how many facilitators and trainers are have been in this field for 30 years well that's something that i'm definitely going to do so thank you very much for that paul thank you and thank you for being on this again and as you said you've got a or you are going to write a book about this is that right well or just someone said you've got 50 activities and i've got 50 more that i've not written up so i may just put out an ebook and give it to humanity to say if you can use it well please do and please add your own well i'll keep an eye out for that and that's on your uh, cats 3000 website correct yeah. great okay well thank you again thanks again paul same time next year yeah <laughs> <laughs> So that was Paul Levy talking about improvisation. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And since that, I've reflected hard upon my own approach to planning and lack thereof and my and whether or not I'm actually an improviser or just somebody who adapts according to the demands and mood of the room. And I think I'm probably closer to the latter. I probably do more adaptation and use of techniques and stuff that I already know and know whether it works or not, rather than making stuff up entirely on the spot. But since this podcast, I have decided to be a bit more improvisational and see how it goes. 
the website that Paul mentioned was appliedimprovisation.network. They've actually changed their location since Paul mentioned it there. So appliedimprovisation.network if you're interested in looking into the use of improvisation in a professional context. And that's it. So I'll see you next time.